If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, I have been reflecting uh, again and again now on the book of Ephesians. And I remember when I first came to the book, I thought, you know what? Um, the hardest part of the book for me will be preaching doctrine, which is the first three chapters, because people struggle with doctrine. And, and um, you know, I have heard from time to time people say, well, what do I need to know doctrine for? Um, well, it was fairly easy for me, and I think as a congregation, we, we learned a little bit more about God and what he's done for us. What I'm really finding difficult is the application of that doctrine. I think it's one thing to tell people sort of concepts and theology and what God has done for us. It's another thing to talk about then how it should impact our behavior. And that's where we are coming into Ephesians. We're talking about how what God has done for us impacts the way that we live. And we start off, I think, with, with a, a general picture, and we're going to zero in more and more in the weeks that come about some specific applications of living as a Christian. But if you have your Bibles, um, I want to look at this morning, Ephesians chapter 4, verses uh, 17 to 24, and that's really going to be the focus for us today. And it will be nothing more really than an overview of it, but I hope it's a helpful overview. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Father, Thank you now for an opportunity to continue worshiping you in your word. Thank you for the way that you have been preparing our hearts and drawing us to, to think about you and to meditate you, to think about what you've done for us. And through that meditation and through our singing, now you are going to help us to see how that works out in our life. And so, Father, I pray that our singing and our thankfulness now will be reflected in a listening heart, in an open mind, and in a willingness to be obedient to you as we leave here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past uh, two or three weeks, I've had the opportunity to share with some individuals as I've been working through some issues with them a great illustration that's found in uh, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Uh, I have just found it to be such a helpful illustration, even in my own life, for the last 20 years or so since I first read it. And I was intrigued as I had finished almost all my study for this passage to read one last commentary and to see that he used this illustration to shape the way that he explained this passage of Scripture. And I thought and thought about it, and I thought there's no better way than to shape this passage of Scripture the way he did. So I am borrowing heavily from his uh, outline uh, for us this morning, and I hope it will be thankful or helpful to us. In this story, C.S. Lewis tells the story of a character who is tormented by a red lizard that sits on his shoulder. The lizard 
which represents the indwelling sin that we constantly face, is, is frequently mocking this young man. Then an angel comes along and he offers to remove the lizard. And the young man is initially thrilled about this possibility. And he says, I can be rid of this thing that torments me? But the young man realizes that the angel glows with a deadly heat. And, 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 and the way that he's going to remove the lizard is by killing it. The young man suggests that maybe it really isn't necessary for the lizard to die. And perhaps there's a, another better way of dealing with this lizard. The angel will be put off, and he says to this young man, uh, this moment contains all moments. The lizard at this point now just realizes he's in big trouble, and he decides to take a different tact in order to survive in this young man's life. He tries to unsettle the man um, with doubts and suggestions that any of us here this morning who have wrestled with temptation understand. And the lizard says to him, be careful. He, meaning the angel, can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd only be sort of a ghost and not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams, but aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. Almost innocent. It's that kind of phraseology and that kind of deception that we often use to justify our own sin and our own compromises. We reason, well, it can't really hurt anybody, can it? And, and if it is wrong, to be without such flaws wouldn't be really human after all. Who could live that way? Only the warped and the legalistic would themselves ever believe such things. I have a better understanding of the grace of God than that. God will forgive me, and I won't let it get too far again in my life. And so with such words, we choose to let our lizards live. We let them sit on our shoulders and we smack them around once in a while to quiet them, but we never are willing to put them to death. We convince ourselves that the remnants of sin in our lives are not really that dangerous after all. That almost innocent is safe enough. But Paul says, instead of nurturing these lizards, or that that nurturing these lizards can only prove fatal to the joyous Christian life. And so that's where Paul brings us as we begin in verse 17. He shows us right away that there's something of an urgency to what he wants to say to these young Christians, to these Christians in Ephesus. And he he says in in a very concise way, very straightforward, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's going to begin to present a contrast of two ways of life, of two ways of living to these young Christians. And the first one is a contrast with one way of life, which is walking worthy of the God who has called us, and the other is walking as the Gentiles do. The second thing is, he's insistent. He says, and I testify to this. 
That's the word that we get martyr from. And so it's a strong testimony to the fact that he's willing to give his life for this testimony. And on top of that, he says, and it's not just me, but in the Lord I say this to you. In other words, this comes with divine authority. This is God speaking to them. This is the kind of stuff that should cause us to sit up and listen carefully. And so he's serious. There's this sense of urgency And as Paul looks down the possibilities open to these young Christians, he says there's two ways. There's the walking in the way that the Gentiles do, which ends in the futility of thinking. It's it's hopeless. There's no joy. There's no purpose. All the promises ultimately will fail. Or there is walking in a way that is pleasing to God, that is a response to what God has done. Two roads, he says. Where do they lead? There are some negatives in the Christian life, and he points out one here. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. This is another summary of the Christian condition. And so here he points out the danger of walking like the Gentiles do. And it's a life that overall is characterized by futile thinking, by, 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 by thinking that is meaningless, that doesn't bring us to conclusions that will ultimately satisfy us. And he he lists a number of these things. He says, first of all, it's characterized by a darkened mind. He starts with our our minds. And notice, this is not um, uh, going in a corner and shutting off the lights and being dark. He's talking about a spiritual darkness, about a moral darkness that sets into our minds. Uh, when, When Jesus was about to come, there were those that were looking forward to his coming. And when he came, they said, those who sit in darkness have seen a great light. In other words, they they have seen the righteousness and the holiness of Christ, and so their dark thinking, their amoral thinking, has now had light shed upon it, and they realize that there is truth, that there is righteousness, that there is a way. And so he says, they are darkened in their mind. It's a moral, spiritual darkness, and it's, it's a result of ignorance, and it leads not towards God, but away from God. He says it comes from the ignorance of their minds, and it alienates them further from God. The more darkened they are, the further they walk away from God. You've heard, us, you've heard this said, I'm sure, before, you are what you eat. We, we use that phrase from time to time, although there was a study I heard on the radio not to go a couple days ago about a doctor who ate nothing but Twinkies for three months, and he actually lost weight. Um, and I thought, I could like that diet. He just managed the amount of calories that he ate, 1,800 calories of Twinkies, and he lost weight. Uh, I don't think that's a healthy way to eat. Anyhow, we do say you are what you eat. Well, in the Christian realm, I think it's a very good statement to say you are what you think. That how you think has a direct and a dramatic influence on how you live. If you don't think right, you won't act right. If you think right, you will act right. And so how we think is hugely important. And he's talking here about futile thinking, which is the result of of somebody who says, I'm not going to read God's word anymore. I don't believe God has written a word for us. I don't believe God speaks. I don't believe God even exists. In, 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 the, in the Psalms, it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Fool, in that sense, is not sometimes what we think of fool, somebody who really lacks any sense whatsoever. It's a spiritual foolishness. It's a mind that says, there is no God, I'm writing God off, even though there's evidence all around me. So the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so to have a darkened mind is to be without hope. It's to have your, your thinking contained by a, by a ceiling um, that says there is no God. 
It's like Ecclesiastes. Vanity, all is vanity. Meaningless, all is meaningless. Because Ecclesiastes presents the picture of one who lives without reference to God. Lots of women, lots of drinking, lots of gardens, lots of working, lots of, lots of pleasure. And it still doesn't bring any happiness. It's futile thinking because it's erased God from one's mind. Christians sometimes find themselves walking down this path. They've lost sight of God. And I've seen this happen. They get mad at God for something. And, and they're upset at God. And so, so they start thinking, well, I don't know God really cares any longer. They've been praying for something for, for weeks, maybe years. And God hasn't answered their prayer. So they begin to tell themselves, well, I guess God really doesn't hear and answer prayer after all. They, they come to church. And, and then one Sunday, they, they take the Sunday off. And they think, well, nothing really bad happened. It's okay if I don't go to church anymore. And so you're no longer hearing the word of God. You used to read the Bible two, three, four times a week. And then all of a sudden, you're... You're reading the Bible maybe once a week and then once a month. And before long, you've pushed God out of your life. Your thinking becomes darkened and you become alienated and distant from God. And so Christians can walk down this road. This is what Paul is warning these new Christians about. And he says, well, how does that start? And this is where we need to listen so carefully. Hardened hearts. Notice what he says there, that they have hardened, because of the hardness of their hearts in verse 18. What Paul is going to present here, beloved, is the pathology of spiritual disease. He's going to help us understand what spiritual disease looks like. And at the very center of it is is a hard heart. You know, the scripture says, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the wellsprings of life. Jeremiah says, the heart is desperately wicked, who can understand it? Jesus tells us in a couple places in the Gospels that out of the heart come all forms of evil and every inclination and thinking towards evil. So we need to learn that our heart is one of the key pieces of this walking down the pathway away from God. And he says there's a, there's a hardening that happens. There's a stubbornness that creeps into one's heart. There's a, there's, a, there's a way that we talk to ourselves and we say, well, it really doesn't matter that I do this. You know, other Christians do it, so, so I can do it. So, so, so all of a sudden we start to set up our own standard, even though it's opposed to the Bible. Sometimes it's an outright rebellion against God. And we just simply say, I do not want God's way in my life. I'm tired of it. I've walked that way for a while, and I don't want it any longer. And so our heart begins to close and begins to come hard hard towards God. And it's this repeated rebellion. It's this repeated moving away from God that begins to harden our hearts. And it becomes calloused, and it becomes even more insensitive to God's ways. And if you've ever used a hammer um, you, you, and used it along, you get calluses on your finger. And the more you use the hammer, the bigger those calluses be- get. And then you don't feel any pain. You don't get blisters any longer. And it just, they get bigger and bigger. And I used to have calluses that I couldn't close my fingers. No, I'm just kidding. But I did get calluses when I worked. So that that happens, though, in the spiritual sense. It's called the sclerosis of the heart, the hardening of the heart that is the result of deliberate choices that we make that are opposed to the lifestyle that God has set before us. And it's possible for Christians to enter into this direction. That's why the writer of the Hebrews is so clear when he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. 
And here's the warning again in a different way. Don't play around with God when he's speaking to you. If you hear his voice today, listen up because there might be built the next layer that comes over your heart and now all you will hear is mumblings and you won't hear the voice of God clearly any longer and you become insensitive to the voice of God speaking to you. I have sat with people. I have sat in coffee shops. I have sat in my offices over the years. People who, who, who had been walking with God and then they started to make little choices. They started to not attend church anymore. They started to put aside Bible reading. They started to think, be mad at God because of circumstances in their life. And all of a sudden, their heart becomes so hard towards God that they make just terrible choices. And I can understand it intellectually. I can understand it in a warning sense. But my heart is always crushed when I see it actually played out in a person life when they just say no to God in a defiant way and I've sat with them and I've cautioned them and I've said to them you know where this is going you know the result you know the emptiness you know the danger you know that you're presuming upon God's grace if you continue walking down their path this path and you see it in them there's no softening there's no repentance there's there's no fear there's 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 nothing And they reply back, and it can be summed up in sort of this way. Paul, I've never felt more alive. Paul, I've never been happier in my life. Paul, I've finally found what's giving me meaning. What are you telling me I'm walking away from God? You say, how does that happen? Well, there is a sense in which there is pleasure in sin. There is pleasure in sex. There is pleasure in romance. There is pleasure in amassing money. There is pleasure in having power. There is pleasure in the perks that come from life. There is pleasure in material success. All of that does bring pleasure. But that's also a pleasure that is blinding when you go for it without God in your life. It leads to futility and meaninglessness. And, and you say, well, how do people, how can they be so alive and at the same time be so spiritually dark? Because they have hardened their hearts, because their thinking has become futile. And the answer is that they have made numerous choices, choice after choice after choice after choice after choice, that finally their heart becomes hard. Brian Chappell quotes a popular novelist who writes, When the time of choosing comes, all the choices have already been made. Understand what he's saying? When, when you come to finally a big choice in your life, it's not necessarily a hard choice because you've made a series of choices that have led to that moment. I think of this spiritual darkening much as a dimmer switch in our house. And you know that when you, when you go into, let's say, your kitchen and the dimmer switch is up bright and you see everything clearly and then, then, then you, 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 you know, um, something happens in your life and, and you get a little bit distant from God and it's like the dimmer switch is turned down a little bit and you can still see but there's little fuzzy things here and there and you can't maybe see all that clearly. And then, you know, you, you, you want a little romantic movement so you turn the light even farther down and you can barely see the person across from you but, yeah, it's, but there's still a little bit of light. Well, that's what happens in sin um, as we follow that, as our heart gets darkened, things then become buzzy and fuzzy and the borders become less clear and then you know that you can take a dimmer switch and you can turn it right off and you can't see a thing. That's kind of what happens in the life of somebody who chooses to walk down the path of the Gentiles. It's like there's a spiritual dimmer switch that just keeps getting turned as they make choice after choice 
after choice. See, one does not make a massive compromise in a day. You make a massive compromise, and these are compromises that shock us. You hear what somebody's done, and you're shocked. You say, how could that ever happen? Well, it's because over a year, or over two years, they've compromised. They've compromised. They've compromised. They've compromised. And it's the same. How, does, how, does, how do three young men on a field with tens of thousands of people and a massive idol behind them and a roaring furnace in the corner and a king saying, when you hear the music, worship me, fall down, how do three young men stand? Because for years they have day after day chosen God, chosen God, chosen God, chosen God. And when that tough moment comes, it's an easy choice to make because they have made choices all along that allow them to stand for God when it becomes difficult. Chapel again writes, I, I love the way he puts this, choices have been allowed to rub against the heart so often that they have calloused it. You know that, well, this doesn't matter that I do this. It's okay to get drunk this weekend. It's okay that I don't read my Bible this weekend. It's okay that I, you know, that I, that I, that I, that I sleep with my, my partner and I'm not married. It's, oh, it's okay that I cheat on my income tax. Slowly but surely, a callus builds over the heart. And then, almost as a natural biological consequence of a hardened heart, the mind grows dark. With a hardened heart no longer pumping life-giving blood, the mind itself grows dull and dark to the things of God. This is what Paul is warning about, loved ones. He's warning about the fact when you become a Christian, we're going to talk about this in a couple of minutes from now, but, but there's two paths that you can take. Becoming a Christian is a radical transformation. It's a reorientation of your life. You cannot become a Christian and continue to walk in the path of the Gentiles. It doesn't work because it leads to futility. It leads to a hardened heart. And, and notice, we don't have time, but if you would look through that passage, you see all the references to thinking. It's what I've said. Thinking eventually leads to behaving. And what does he say here then? Look at what he says. He says, you're darkened in your understanding. Your ignorance has led you away from God. Your heart has become hardened and calloused. And now what happens? Look at what he says. They have become calloused in verse 19 and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You are what you think. Paul says you will then begin to live out what you have justified in your mind. It, it, the, the heart becomes calloused. It becomes dead to feeling. And we're no longer aware of pain. We're no longer aware of pleasure. There's a loss to sensitivity. So, so we, we give ourselves over. It's like we, we just hand ourselves over to the sin or the temptation that has been hounding us. We just give ourselves over to sensuality. It, it's a form of pleasure-seeking that, that seems to cast off all restraint. We say, I don't care any longer. It doesn't matter to me any longer. I'm just going to give myself over to this. And just so we don't think it's just sexual sin, and he says, to every kind of impurity. We just say, God no longer has a place in my life. God no longer speaks to me. There is no God. Therefore, I'm going to live as though there is no God. We give ourselves over. And you know, loved ones, this is not just an individual callousness. 
There can be a societal callousness or a church callousness. I, I've been thinking a little bit about this. this. This congregation is a little bit different than the first congregation. It's, it's much older. But, but if you're in your, your 60s, 70s, 80s, there is stuff now that your kids and your grandkids watch, and you're just shocked. And there's no offense to them. They don't bat an eye. They don't turn off the TV. They don't listen to a different song. It's just like, it's just like normal to them. Where to a generation above them, they're just absolutely shocked. How could you watch that? How could you listen to that? Well, it's because the callus is built up. We no longer see it as wrong. We're no longer offended by it. We no longer think it's contrary to God. We think God's grace will cover it all. And so the callous builds up in a societal way as well. well. And what Paul is describing here is not simply psychology. In fact, I don't think he's describing psychology at all. He's describing the pathology of spiritual disease. And pathology is the process of a disease. It's the nature, origin, process, or cause of a disease. So he's saying, how does sin take root in your heart and lead you to a point where you are distant from God? Well, here it is. That's what he's describing to us. Some of you know that personally. Some of you are on a dangerous point in your life even this morning. Some of you maybe have already gone to that point. And I'm here to tell you, and I'll say it again, today is the day. Respond to Christ. Do not harden your hearts any longer. So Paul has presented this, and beloved, we need to hear this kind of stuff. He's writing to the saints. He's writing to the church. He's saying to them, get off this path, get on to this path. And I don't understand how this all works, but I know that sometimes God graciously allows us to see this path that we're on, to see the hardening effect that sin is having in our lives, and he frees us from its grasp. But remember, that is grace. What is grace? Grace is giving to us what we don't deserve. Justice is giving us what we deserve. So we ought never to presume upon God's grace. And when you hear the Spirit of God prompting you, when you know that God is saying to you, no, don't do that, do this. Walk away from that. Walk towards this. Listen to the voice of God as He speaks to your heart. And C.S. Lewis describes very well, and I, I, I can't read it all this morning, but he, he comes to the point where finally this young man says, okay, kill him. And so the angel steps forward, and, 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 and this lizard, you know, Lewis describes it in such a great way, the lizard just starts going crazy and starts speaking to his ear and, and, and starts whispering more lies, and finally the, the, the angel's hand grabs on this lizard and smashes it to the ground and the guy kind of whimpers away there. But then something beautiful happens as Lewis describes it. He says, the lizard becomes this beautiful stallion. And this man who was a ghost of a man all of a sudden begins to get flesh and bones and ripples, muscles. And it's Lewis's way of saying, this is what the deception looked like. A ghost of a man with a red lizard on his on his shoulder um, that was full of deception. This is what God wants for us. He can take that ugly lizard and he can turn it into giving us something that he intends for us, something beautiful, a stallion that we can ride on. He takes our life, which is something that God never wanted for us, and he gives us a life that God always intends for us. And so he says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. What's the alternative then? Well, what are the influences of walking as a saint? What are the influences? This is the contrast. So Paul's saying to these Christians, he says, no, no, don't walk as the Gentiles do. Because it leads to this. Walk 
as a saint. And this is how he describes it. We are to be influenced by Christ. Who are you listening to? See, instead of listening to the red lizard that's on our shoulder, Paul says to them, you did not come to know Christ this way. You did not learn Christ like this. And, and that word learn doesn't just mean intellectual knowledge. It means relational knowledge. He's saying, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know that Christ doesn't want you to walk that way. You know that Christ has never lived like that. You know that Christ has never talked like that. So he says, you need to walk in the way that you know Christ has already been teaching you to walk in. Walk in the way that you have learned. Walk in the way that Christ has taught you. And he says, he says even farther, assuming that you have heard about him. That's what the NAS, uh, ESV says. I'm not happy with that translation. That word about is not in the Greek text. A lot of your translations would say of. It simply should read, this is, not, this is assuming that you have heard him. And that's an important distinction. Assuming that you have heard him. Because that implies that we have heard Christ as he spoke historically. We've got his records of what Christ taught. The apostles' teaching is what Christ taught. So we have heard him. But we have also heard him because he lives in us. Right? Christ is not just a historical figure that, that, oh, he just wrote some good things and he just said some good things. No, Paul says, I have died. It's no longer I that lives, but it's Christ that lives in me. And so as you walk, you hear the voice of Christ because he lives in you and he speaks to you and he encourages you and he warns you and he comforts you and he guides you and he gives you wisdom and he points you to the text. And so he says, you have, you have, this is, this, you have heard him. He says, and what have you been taught? Uh, he says, you have been taught in him as the truth is about Jesus Christ, that in Christ there is truth. And there is, there, we could spend so much here, but just let me illustrate a couple things. I think what Paul wants us to get here is that, loved ones, when you become a Christian, it's not just that you change a few things about your life. You become a completely different person. John 3.13, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Flesh Flesh is flesh, spirit is spirit. So when you become a Christian and you're born again, you become new. And 2 Thessalonians 5.17 says um, uh, uh, that therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We need to talk to ourselves that way. We need to say, I'm no longer this kind of person. I no longer have this nature. I am born again. I'm a new creature. All things have passed away. As I've already said, that, that we are in Christ. Our whole sphere of living is now being connected with Christ. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We have had heart surgery. God takes our heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. And so, loved ones, as you're walking down this road of following Christ, and you say, and your, your, your temptation says, well, do this, no big deal. No, I'm a new creature in Christ. No, I've been born again. Talk to yourself. Tell yourself truth. Tell yourself that that's not how you learned Christ. And so he says, you've been taught about Christ. And then we are to live differently. Notice again the connection between thinking and behaving. 
Just as wrong thinking leads to wrong behaving, sensuality, and every kind of impurity, so right thinking leads to right behaving. And what does that right behaving look like? Well, he says that you are to put off the old self, which belongs to your former nature of life. Put off, in some contexts, means take off the old, like you would take off dirty clothes. Peel off that old self. Take it off. I think it also means, though, that, that we think about what I've told you, that, that, that we put off the old self and we say, no, I'm not like that any longer. No, I'm a saint. No, Christ has made me a new creature in Christ. No, Christ lives in me. I don't have to live like that. And so Paul says, as you walk the Christian road, talk to yourself into remembering the amazing things, the transformation that God has done in you. It's not just minor surgery. This is major surgery. This is resurrection surgery. You've gone from death to life. Put off that old self. Stop thinking like that. Stop believing those lies. Start believing the truth about what God says about you. And then he says, and, and you know, I, I want to say this, because we've got some younger people here. You need to get a hold of this when you're young. Because it is so much easier to walk with Christ in holiness and in righteousness when you don't have all these history of baggage and of disobedience and of a hardened heart. And if you give your life to Christ as a young person and you say, I will follow him, he will preserve you and he will protect you and he will give you an innocent, pure heart that is such a wonderful thing to have as opposed to to waiting and coming to Christ when you're 30 or 40. And yes, you can be saved and he will save you. It's amazing. It's wonderful. But there are struggles that you will have that are are the consequence of a life of walking away from God, patterns that you've established that are hard to let go of. And Christ can let you let go of them. But why go through that if you can respond to Christ as a young person and say, I need you, Jesus, in my life. Two years old, three years old, four years old. I need you, Jesus, in my life. Second thing he says, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. There it is again, the mind, the mind. We know what Romans 12 says, do not be conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind um, so that you may test what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, do you not, loved ones? The world tries to squeeze you into its mold. It bombards us with a way of thinking that is anti-God. Dress like this. Watch this. Talk like this. It's okay to do this. It's okay to do there. Everybody's doing it. If it feels good, do it. We get bombarded with that stuff. We need to have our minds transformed and renewed by the washing of the Word of God. Read it, memorize it, meditate on it, come to church, get in a small group. Allow the word of God to begin to change the way that you think. And then finally, he says, put on the new self created after the likeness and image of God. That's what I've been trying to say in in a few different ways. Paul calls them saints. That's what you are. Live up what you are now. 
Become what you already are in Christ. Put on this new self. I'm a new creature. I'm going to put that on. I've been born again. I don't have to listen to that. That part of me is dead. Christ is dwelling in me. Put that on on a daily basis. I know Christianity is messy. I know that we will never be perfect this side of heaven. I know that we will struggle. And I hope in our struggles we will talk to one another. Because one of the dangers of this hardened road is that people... They, they, they veer off course just a little bit and they think, well, it's no big deal. They don't tell anyone. They don't talk to anyone. They get a little bit farther down and then maybe they're full of a little bit more shame and guilt. And then they get to a crisis point and then they come and it's so hard to help. When you start finding yourself thinking a little bit off or, 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 or wanting to do a particular sin or doing it a few times, that's the time, loved ones, that you go out with a friend and you say, you know, I've really been wrestling this. Will you pray with me? They will love you. They're not going to cast you aside. They're not going to judge you because they're just like you. We need to realize, though, that in our old nature, all we could ever do is sin. When we get this new nature, we can, for the first time, not sin. Do you know that there is coming a day when we have our new bodies in Christ where we will not be able to sin? What a day that will be. But in the meantime, it's a little messy. And so talk with people, pray with people. Don't handle life on your own. That's what the body has been given to us for. Beloved, we are in a battle. We are in a spiritual battle. It's a battle for our minds. It's a battle for our souls. It's a battle for our loyalty. And Christ has done so much for us. He's done everything that we need to walk victoriously. I know sin looks appealing. I know it appears right. I know it's sometimes almost innocent. But once we indulge, we embark on this dangerous pathway that if we continue on it, will lead us away from God. And you know, sin will always come up short. It will never fulfill what it initially promises you. And we know that its deceitfulness and its trickery will lead us to death. And when our minds are, are clouded and darkened by sin, we don't begin to think straight any longer. We find ourselves farther and farther and farther away from God. Loved ones, recognize the poison that sin is. Repent of it today. And as the writer of Hebrews says, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. Loved ones, if you have started to veer down the path of the Gentiles, I urge you in Christ. Repent. Get back into the way of life. Remember what God has done for you. And on that path, you will find freedom. You will find joy. You will find fulfillment. You will find meaning. You will find peace.